Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name is Stuart Wright, and today I've got returning guests. Welcome to the show, Michael Mangello. How are you doing, Stuart? I'm doing very well, sir. Doing very well. All the better for a catch-up after four years. Uh, always, a, always a pleasant surprise to see how fast time travels. It does travel fast, but I'm glad to be back and uh, glad to be talking with you today. And that was for the film Diane that was playing at Fright Fest. And here we are to talk about your new film, The Changed, which is also playing at Fright Fest. Before we go into any detail about that movie, do you want to give people a brief synopsis to what The Changed is all about? Well, The Changed is about how one family is seeing their friends and neighbors change and their growing paranoia uh, and everything that happens within a 24-hour period. Are they being paranoid or is it really happening? So it's uh, a riff on you know the invasion of the body snatchers type of story. viewers. I'm Katie Walters, a face you know and trust, now changed for the better. I'm asking for your trust now. If you're watching this broadcast, you represent the small percentage of those still unaffected by the historical and metaphysical change your species is experiencing across the globe. We ask that you open your hearts and homes to those who will initiate your transition. Open your doors to them now. There's nothing to be afraid of. Those who continue to resist will be taken by force at sunrise. You will make the right choice to join us. We know that you will make the right choice to join us. And I know that's what you've done on your podcast choices. (laughs) We have made the right choice to join you. Yes, our our wonderful uh, actor, Kathy Cyril, who um, has uh, the with credit in the movie for showing up and... uh, giving us that thing, uh, that that, uh, wonderful speech uh, from the newscaster that's so heavily featured in the trailer. Now, before I get in, now usually I'd go straight into asking about the the screenplay, but the first thing I want to ask you is, in the opening credits of the movie, it says production by, film by, then it says conspiracy by you. What's what's going on there, Mike? 
I think I've been using the conspiracy tag, you know, like a Spike Lee joint. It's a, it's a Michael Mangelo conspiracy. I think I've been using that for the last three features. Um, so it just tied in nicely with the storyline since it is about conspiracies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Right, okay. So maybe I just I was just on red alert when I saw it this time. Yes. <laughs> always trying to be clever, you know. I always I mean you can't you can't take Spike Lee's, which is the best, but yeah. uh, I, I thought conspiracy was good. I, I guess when you when you decided on that, you never imagined that you'd be literally preceding a conspiracy story. Exactly. Exactly. We, well, we did go so far as our logo actually has entertainment conspiracies below it. We we took that out for the opening logo bug, but uh, um, yeah, we decided to stick with it, and um, obviously, it goes with the whole theme of the film. Now, like you said, this is this is riffing on Invasion of Body Snatchers uh, with a health, and and I'd say as far as the drama goes, with a healthy dose of sort of Night of the Living Dead, the idea of being enclosed in a space and sort of. The world outside is getting more and more frightening and the world inside is getting more and more paranoid. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. But from the point of view of the screenplay and where, where that begins, what was the, what was the kernel of the idea that sort of got the, got the engine going on this film? This script uh, is actually based on the first 10 pages of an entirely different story. I shouldn't say entirely different. It involves all the same characters, but Basically, we took the first 10 pages of a, a uh, script that was originally titled Awful Bliss, okay. um, which really came from the kernel of the idea that as much as I love Invasion of the Body Snatchers, especially Philip Kaufman's version, mm-hmm. and um, Snatchers was Abel Ferreira, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which I, I really love those two versions of this type of story, but there are, there are, there are a few others... And um, also with genre, you know, you're talking about zombie films, and this certainly is, I mean, if we're talking about the two major influences on this story, it is definitely Invasion of the Body Snatchers and uh, the original Night of the Living Dead, people trapped in that space. Most of those zombie stories, most of those pod people stories just take so long to get get there. Mm. The original kernel of the original story, the Awful Bliss script, was everybody has seen this kind of movie before. Let's just start in the third act. Which okay. is what? Which is really what we did. Unfortunately, I shouldn't say unfortunately because it is a great thing that we got to make this film. But you know, now we've done Acts One, Two, and Three, and uh, the sequel would pick up essentially where this one leaves off. Which, like I said, is within the first ten pages of the original script. So that script really had more in common with. Um, Red Dawn. Oh, okay, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, you know, it becomes like sort of this uh, ragtag team of people who are doing, you know, hits on the change. Then they're trying to make it to a free zone, and uh, that's that's a twenty-five million dollar film. There's <laughs> always tomorrow, Michael. There's always tomorrow. There's always tomorrow. Um, but uh, we basically decided to expand the opening of this because I knew the characters so well. Yeah. Um, we had the ear of an investor who was interested in working with us. And uh, so we just expanded it to be the one story uh, that takes place with those characters in the single space. And like a lot of independent film, you know, it's the elevator story. How can you do something simply in a, in a small space and keep it contained? Now, it, now it coming out, again, it's, 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 is this is European premiere at Fright Fest? This is the world premiere at Fright Oh, Fest. congratulations. Let's just uh, get that on mic. Thank you. World premiere, yes. well done. Given it's coming out in... In, while we're at the, we're in kind of long tail of the pandemic, 
its production life? Was this shot before the pandemic or in the pandemic? Or We actually were able to shoot it um, here in New England during the pandemic. We had to go through all the procedures in order to get clearance to SAG and uh, do, you know, a great many things in order to make it fe- make it safe for folks, getting tested every other day. Um, we basically created a bubble between the hotel and the single location. Okay. Um, and we all we shot the entire thing in one location. As in fact, several of the scenes that you see that don't take place in the house we built sets in this enormous house that we uh, were lucky to uh, secure as a location. Right. Okay. Because I was because yeah. a line I wrote down that that made me think it, it's either very prescient and and very soothsaying of you, uh, a cold that make that makes you different. Uh, and I was thinking <laughs> this is. This is a bit ominous in the current in the current context. You know, when we started to involve people in the project uh, during the pandemic, you, you know, people were very surprised to learn that the entire premise and the entire concept. Um, you know, of course, you know, I can't take credit for Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but um, you know, we're probably giving a little bit away by saying that it's the transformation doesn't occur in the same way. It's you know, we could even you know cite you know. Uh, Alex Garland's 28 Days Later with the virus. And of course, that was a riff on, um, you know, all the zombie films that Mm. Romero had done. So building on that mythology, um, it's uh, transmitted um, by what is essentially a virus, although it's not entirely a virus. I'll let let people watch the movie to reveal that. Of course. Yeah, yeah. No, it just is when you when you hear those lines in the current context, it's it's hard to not sort of step out of the film and think about about real life as well as what you're watching on the movie. Which is, you know, which is, I think, what's wonderful about, um, you know, the invasion of the body snatchers and Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead and all those films that um, they have to be a reflection of the time that they come mm. out just by the virtue of when they're released. And, uh, of course, you know, with this one being written and conceived about 10 years ago, I think it's uh, incredibly interesting that it's just as um, topical now as it was then. You know, really the the thing, yeah, I was really looking to make a comment and be critical of groupthink mentality, but these other topics, of course, with the virus and how it spread, um, it certainly became uh, much more present in our concerns with telling the story. In fact, there was a line where um, Carly Avers uh, played Diane in in our film, Diane, uh, who plays Jane in this film describes like I think this is a pandemic and there was a whole little monologue about a pandemic and of course when we we shot it but when we got into the editing room we're like ah let's we don't have to drive it home that hard well I'm glad you said about the group thing because the other th- another thing I wrote down was that was the line individually individuality will not be tolerated which is another right. interesting part of because there's one thing for a virus to change people but then there's also the idea that there's a reason behind this and there's a there's not just a change in terms of you can't help it but also there's a change you're going to have to make, which, which you know, watching the States from afar, there's a lot of groupthink lunacy going on with red caps on and stuff that we see quite a lot of. Sure. And everywhere right now, we've got lots of anti-vaxxers who are trying to convince themselves and anyone they can get their hands on that this, what's happening isn't real. It's uh, the exact line, which I like, because it was really important for me to not suggest a hive mind mm. um, with the changed is uh it's actually probably my favorite line in the movie um individuality in the interest of self 
will not be tolerated. Sorry, yes. I know it. I know the movie pretty well, but yeah, that 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 being, um, uh, you know, I think the core question of the movie, uh, which is, you know, are the changed right? Are they wrong? And uh, but but also, but also as mean? well in America, you've got you're in, you've set it in a suburbia, which is another form of group thing. My sister in law lives somewhere near Portland. And they got okay. a charter with their house telling them how long the grass could be. And if they didn't mow the lawn, they'd be fined. And you're like, it's my house. Oh, right. With, with gated communities and there's uh, definitely ordinances, um, you know, here in Connecticut where you can't have a basketball hoop or if mm. you were to put, um, you know, lawn decorations like, you know, a flamingo or something on your lawn. Yeah. You'll get fined and. So, so you've got you know, that kind of uniformity going on anyway in, in your backdrop to your film. It's like it, we, we kind of accept a lot of group thing without really thinking too hard about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, choose your battles. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> that's, that's what it comes down to. You, you, you've talked about the influences, this, the Vegas Boys, that just not living dead. And obviously they, both films created sort of clear rules, as it were, as to, that seem to have lasted. But in terms of you then creating, and like you said, Alex Garland then went, I'll take those rules and I'll just shift them just a bit over here and bring in this. Yes. So for you, when you were playing with those things that you already know, but then you're making the change and you were creating your own rules about what was going yes. on, what were the challenges about creating the rules for your film? Uh, you know, I did what I could to actually adhere to science and to make it believable, but of course... Somewhere within there, you always have to let there be a leap and uh, hope people are going to suspend their disbelief on, mm. um, on, on, on those rules. So ultimately, it's actually not a virus, but a microorganism, microorganism that's passed mm. um, from host to host. And um, that host, uh, that alien entity then integrates with the host. So um, you are preserving all the memories and, and experiences of the host, yet those people are then imbued with essentially a cosmic knowledge and a cosmic understanding that is uh, essentially a metaphysical transformation, you know, mentally, spiritually, if you want to call it that, of course they wouldn't, but, mm. um, you know, so you essentially are achieving nirvana through this transformation. So that, um, whether we buy it scientifically or not, you know, who's to say, I guess if, if you bought the, if you buy the film, um, you know, again, you know, you have people speculating in the film, like you often do in exposition, like maybe it's this, maybe it's that, well, yeah. that's how this is transmitted. And then we do learn when one of the, one of the characters has changed that she does reveal, uh, you know, the, the, the secret, uh, which we are hoping to learn the entire film, which is how it actually occurs. Yeah. And, and, and I think as well, it's like that idea of the transformation not being a threat in terms of you don't get destroyed, but mm-hmm. you do change, hence the title, hence the, the idea of being one of the changed. So it's a, it's almost like it's almost like you could, <laughs> you could your, your idea could be like, I'm going to present the, the solution to depression. Come over here. Right. You know. And, and that's, that's what I always loved about, um, you, know, you know, especially Kaufman's version. You know, I really considered riffing on the exact line that Nimoy says in that version, which is, you know, the, um, you know, you're killing me. And he says, uh, you know, uh, Donald Sutherland's character is like, well, we have no time for that. There's no time. There's no time for love. There's 
no, no time for hate. So in that line, we encapsulate that even though you're essentially going to be walking into what could be considered a paradise of, mm. of peace and unity on earth, everybody is going to be devoid of passion. And, you know, is life worth living without love and hate? That's the question. That's always fascinating to me. And what I really liked about this story and in telling the story and exploring it with all of these actors is, you know, we really had a, a very interesting camp where the actors who were cast as those who were not changed, of course, of course, we don't want to be changed. We want to remain ourselves mm. and we want to be individuals and we want to have our own thoughts and feelings and ideas. And the people who were playing the changed um, were very much like, well, why wouldn't anybody want to do this? You're basically offering um, complete peace and harmony, uh, which would then, of course, go worldwide. Who wouldn't want that at the cost of who you are? That's the question. At the cost of free will. Yes. At the cost of free will. Individuality in the interest of self. Then again, we, we offer that already. You know, you can go into a, in a, into, a, into a psychiatric facility. Somebody will give you some drugs and that essentially switch you off. You know, right. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. But you'll still function. You'll still know who you are. You'll still, but you'll be, you'll be flatlined emotionally. Right. I mean, I don't know and about you, but that? I kind of, it's like the idea <laughs> of, um, of every film being brilliant and every song being brilliant. It's like, that's impossible. The, the great thing is when we experience things we don't like, it makes the things that we do like all that better, you know, the peaks and the troughs of emotions to subjective things are what makes us, the idea of not having a reaction, which brings me neatly onto something that I, I got, uh, this is something at the end and it isn't a feature of the film. It's something, it's a choice you made. You put the thermals on the end of your soundtrack and I'm like, <laughs> of all the, I mean, I'm not, I, you know, I can't, there won't be many people that will be, uh, that I'm guessing they'll be interviewing you that will say the thermals were on the end of your soundtrack. But I was like, what the hell? Amazing choice. Yeah. So how did, how did you get, get together with that? We have some uh, religious threads in the film. You know, some of the things that characters say and some of the things that characters do, um, you know, God is mentioned. And so, you know, we're talking uh, on not a direct level, but just um, touching on the topic of religion within the world. And, you know, the body, the blood, the machine, I think is the album that think that song came off of. Mm -hmm. Here's your future by, by the thermals yeah. uh, on sub pop records. Um, no longer uh, a band. Um, they disbanded a while back, but uh, I really just loved how that song paralleled certain elements of the story um, and not in a direct way, but uh, the, the whole theme, or I shouldn't say it's theme, but the whole mention of individuality and how when uh, the character played by Jason Allen Smith, Mac, is mm. talking about things that he loves, he mentions punk rock. He does, yes, so, yes, as a kind of yeah, so what it, it means it, to be it tied into with that, which of course is, um, you know, a staple of anti-authority and all the things that uh, I love in music. I mean, look, I love, you know, I love bands like Yes, I love bands like Wilco, but 
you know, the Clash and the Thermals and Sex Pistols and all those great punk bands, you know, uh, how can you not, how can you not love them? And I really felt that that was uh, something that was anthemic of, you know, the human spirit. Mm. Punk rock. Now, now in your cast, you've got, a, 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 you know, bona fide sort of horror icon in uh, Tony Todd playing Bill. Sure. Can you talk about what it was like to work with work with him and what in casting him in the role, what did he bring to it that until he started being it, you were like, oh, wow, there we go. There's Bill. When I was uh, talking with my investor about upping the budget so we could actually get some name talent, mm. um, she asked, who do you want? And I said, gosh, if I could get anybody for this role, it would be Tony Todd. <laughs> and no. so... It was really just, I had that, I mean, he's got that silky smooth voice. Um, even with such a large presence, he's always just a very calm and collected and cool individual. So I thought, um, let's try and get Tony. And that was really one of my first thoughts about casting. And when we were able to get him, he read the script and he loved the script. And his, um, his manager, uh, Jeff, was just super enthusiastic about it. So they were... We were able to make it happen, and uh, I've never, I've, I've worked with some other celebrities, but Tony Todd was the most joyful experience I've had mm. working with somebody at that level. He came in; it was an indie film shoot. You know, he was surrounded. Mo I mean, Claire Foley, of course, has got some great notoriety as mm. the Sinister Girl, and she's uh, in Gotham, and she's in Orange Is the New Black, and she's actually the top billed star of the film, and she's wonderful. Uh, but you know, Tony Todd came in and just worked with everybody as an equal, um, treated everybody with respect and, and had such respect for the material, had great suggestions. Um, I mean, it was really a dream. He's a great guy. Mm. Um, I, I can't say enough good things about Tony. And from, as, as, as a, you're an experienced director, but, but then when you sort of, how do you direct somebody like him? Do, do, are you, <laughs> cause obviously you've got, you, you, you said, you know, this is my dream, my dream cast and you get your dream cast. So you kind of, you know, if it's if the if the theory is to believe, you know, ninety percent of directing is in the casting, you know, sure. so you've kind of solved a lot of your problems already. So, what's the relationship like then for you as the director when you're looking at someone like him to deliver the the action? You're right. It really does come down to casting and um, just being open to suggestions. But with Tony, he actually took direction quite well. Hmm. Um, you know, in uh, as a director, when you really nail it in the casting ultimately what your direction becomes at least in my experience is really in terms of volume you know i, I direct yeah, yeah, yeah. In using volume as the as the as the analogy which is just like okay well you're at about a six i need you at about a three right and right. you know if you've sat through rehearsals and table reads and you've had a lot of conversations ahead of time you've already built a relationship that allows you to have those conversations i would never ever want to try and coax something out of an actor by saying, you know, do this exactly or do that exactly, gesture this way, gesture that way, say this line like this, I'm going to give you a mm. read. I mean, if you're doing that, you're probably, you're probably off track already or um, you're just not doing a very good job. But, you know, again, like they say that Spielberg will actually direct off screen and tell people like, you know, turn your head left, turn your head right, look this way, look that way, take a drag of your cigarette, do this, do that. I mean, so who's to say? But, you know, in my experience, collaboration is the key. And um, I love to just draw something out of an actor um, 
by allowing them to do what they do best. And if you've cast right, you know, it usually takes care of itself. Now you've already, you've already mentioned this. So my segue is to go to talk about Claire Foley. So how, how did that casting come about? Claire Foley was a real fluke. She was working with an acting coach who's a friend of a filmmaker friend of mine named Jeff Riley. Mm-hmm. And we were looking for young cast members. I, I really didn't want to cast somebody who was in their 20s to play a 17-year-old. I really wanted to cast a 17-year-old. Yeah. And um, at the time when we cast her, she was 17. Um, I talked with my friend Jeff Riley's uh, acting coach, and he said, oh, hey, have you ever seen Sinister? Have you ever seen Gotham? I'm actually working with Claire Foley. If you'd like me to make the introduction. And he did. And uh, we got together. Um, I didn't even have her read. You know, we just got together and we had a meeting and I saw that she was the kind of person I could work with. And uh, she I, she was a delight. Um, her, her, her mom, Megan, was on set with her the whole time. Right. And, um, you know, because Claire was, you know, Claire is very young uh, and uh, she's just such a delight that I actually, I think at the rap party uh, said, said to her mom, I was like, you know, if it wasn't weird for a guy in his fifties to hang out with a teenage girl, I would want to hang out with Claire. She's just funny, smart, talented. I, I can't, again, it was a great experience on this film. I can't say enough good things about the, you know, uh, higher profile talent um, than, you know, some of my more, Constant collaborators who, of course, are very talented as well. I was going to, and you've given me a lovely segue there. Uh, you have got a lot of the gang back together from Diane, from my, from uh, with Jason Allen Smith, obviously, and Carly and Kathy, and um, Ryan Barry. I noticed as well. He gets, he gets, he's, he's in the hospital s- sequence. Always fun to get the gang back together. Um, you know, Jason and I are business partners as well in Meantime Productions, so we always to work together and we always have a great time and he brings so much to the table both in front of and behind the camera yeah carly uh avers um who played jane who is in diane of course as diane doug tompos just these folks are some of the best actors i just out there in the world and i highly recommend that any other filmmakers who might be listening consider these people as talent they are just you know hold their own you know these are folks who you know like with jason um Jason Allen Smith, you know, you're talking about people who can hold their own with anybody. Mm. Uh, Carly Avers can hold their own with any talent. And, and, and Tony Todd was so gracious with them as well. And so giving, and, you know, it wasn't long before everybody's working together. Like you would see an ensemble with no egos and, you know, nothing attached to it about who you are, who I am and where I am in the industry. So, yeah, just, that's why I do this really is to work with those people again and again, to have that troop and to have a good time. Nice to find our tribe, isn't it? <laughs> it's worth doing. In terms of the look and feel of the film, what, what were some of your conversations like with, uh, is it RJ LaRusso? Is that how I say the RJ LaRusso, our, our, our young intrepid DP. Yes. So yeah, your um, DP. So what was your conversations there about the look and feel? And also to keep it interesting when obviously you're in small spaces, there's a limit to what you can do. How were you making that be most effective for you? You know, we, we talked a lot about, especially since we had such a short shooting ske- shooting schedule, you know, how do we cover scenes with as little coverage as possible? And how do we attribute different feelings of the film and um, attribute, um, you know, different impacts with the cinematography through how we shoot different scenes, um, actors or characters. So we ultimately came up with a formula that is basically when um, the changed 
when when a scene was in control of the cha- the changed were controlling uh, the situation, you've got no handheld camera. When people are controlling the scenes, you'll see that it's always handheld camera, even if it's only slight. So that was one of the earlier tricks that we decided to employ um, very early in the film when things are steady, everything's very still, no handheld camera. But you'll notice that even when we get into the film and we start cross-cutting, um, you'll see that if somebody's changed, lock still. Okay. It's not, it's moving camera. And so we decided to choose our battles also as well by shooting multiple cameras when we had multiple people in the room to try and accelerate the production. But we used that in a way that we made sure that it made sense as far as the visual grammar that we were trying to employ throughout the whole film. And very much a dogma film too. I mean, we certainly had lighting in the film, but whenever possible, we were mostly using practicals and natural daylight. And of course, you know, even to the, you know, to the point of like using overhead fluorescents that were actually in the room and things like that. No, I remember an interview with Jeremy Saulnier talking about the green room. And obviously a lot of the action in that movie happens in literally a green room at a venue, but you've got Mm -hmm. multiple people in the room. And to make that interesting, you've got to really be, I mean, it's obviously not as, it's easier to deal with than a truck rolling down a highway. But, but in terms of the language of cinema, you've got to really think about how you get people involved in the scene because if they're there then what if they're not if they're there and they're not doing anything what are they in the scene for it's it's tough it's uh you know it's a tough balance i mean i always look at other filmmakers um you know say paul thomas anderson you know just by way of example stanley kubrick of course where you just have these long takes that when you're engaged in the story and you're engaged in the performance you don't even think about that even as a filmmaker when i'm engaged in a story that way mm-hmm. i don't think of a story in a, in a critical fashion if I'm engaged. So when I go back and rewatch these things, it's really something that fascinates me that, you know, look, if we've got our audience, we can almost get away with anything visually mm-hmm. as long as people are engaged in the story and they care about the characters. You know, if you, if you succeed in that, you're probably not going to have to worry about the rest that much. One of the films we did actually watch, uh, both RJ and I, um, a couple of times was, do you remember uh, the film that R- uh, Richard Linkletter did called Tape? Yes, yes. The one with uh, Yuma Thurman turns up at the hotel room. Yeah, it takes place entirely in a hotel room. And his whole mentality, and I really agree with him, is like, you know, you can shoot something in a, in a room if you just think about how you're going to go about it. I mean, you can make anything cinematic. So to say that you can't shoot something in a room and make it cinematic is probably not true. <laughs> you know, of course, yeah. we're talking about some great directors. You got Linkletter and you've got Kubrick and you've got, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson. But I mean, I really agree that, you know, it's the details you want to show, how to move the story forward. And of course, a lot of that comes down to a pace that you, you know, work out in the editing room as well. This was, I think the first cut was 90 minutes and we ended up cutting this back to the, the total runtime is 80 you're like my segue man here because my thoughts were, um, what did you learn about the story? What, what did the story reveal to itself in editing that wasn't clear when you were writing it? Gosh, too many things, too many things. <laughs> I think uh, it revealed that the, the script was a little overwritten. And um, as a screenwriter yourself, I think um, you can identify with this, that sometimes you over-explain mm. and um, then sometimes you don't explain enough. So it's always better to show and not tell. Mm. Um, as we know. So there are a lot of times when we realized, of course, when we had the whole narrative laid out in front of us that 
we don't need to tell that. We can just show that, and that's going to take care of itself. So um, we went in with a pretty thin script. It was only 90 pages. Okay, okay. Um, and so, you know, I, uh, I had very nervous. Um, and you shot all 90 pages? Yeah, we shot all 90 pages, wow, okay, and, okay. and it did time out to 90 pages. I had a very nervous line producer, <laughs> uh, also a filmmaker, Eric Bloomquist, and his brother Carson Bloomquist were great guys. Um, and the assistant director were like, yeah, this is really thin. Is this going to make it? I said, I've done this before. A page equals a minute for me every time I, I, I assure you. And it did end up being very, it was, if it wasn't 90 minutes, it was like 89 minutes. Yeah. And, uh, of course we ended up just shaving things away and, uh, letting, uh, you know, the story breathe a little bit more without so much talk, talk, talk. I mean, it's, it's a lot of talk. <laughs> so, um, I think that's always something to remember. Um, you know, for, for, uh, filmmakers, uh, novice and expert, mm. you know, just make sure your script is a, a proper length because you are going to be taking away. As we speak now, 17th of August, your plans are to attend Fright Fest. As of now, yeah, the goal is that I, uh, can, if I could make it to the UK, yeah. um, you know, if my, if my flight isn't canceled, if I'm not turned away at the border for, uh, any number of reasons, I, I mean, I've been doing, uh, more research on how to get to the UK and exit safely than I think I've done research on some of my scripts. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I've got to figure out where to go and how to get a test, but, uh, yeah, the goal is to be there and, uh, you know, share the experience with, um, you know, the attendees of the festival and other filmmakers and enjoy that. It's, you know, it's a lot of work. So this is always the, the fun part to see it screen. Well, look, fingers crossed. Congratulations on the change. Congratulations on your world premiere coming up at Fright Fest. And as always, absolute pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure, Stuart. Thank you. everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Say big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save big.